owe a lot of what A Quiet Place is to that cinema of Shyamalan that, that at a very ripe age like taught us that a, a concept can be more than just what meets the eye and it can be a popcorn film but it can also be something that strikes you in your own life experience if you have suffered loss or suffered anything that these characters have gone through. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're joined by the fantastic Scott Beck and Brian Woods, two childhood friends from Iowa who in 2018 scored a box office smash with A Quiet Place. Directed and co-written by The Office's John Krasinski, the movie was a post-apocalyptic alien survival story with a twist. After the Earth is invaded by creatures who prey on sound, we're introduced to a family who lived their lives in silence, on a remote farm aware that the slightest noise could doom them all. A Quiet Place was an almost unbearably tense rollercoaster ride, one that, between terrifying alien attacks, touched on topics of grief, loss, and what it means to be a parent. Here's Beckham Woods on how they wrote the hit film, the car crash mystery that propelled their first draft, and the storytelling secrets of M. Night Shyamalan that helped them on their way. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Scott, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, we're excited to be here. Such and, such a very cool podcast idea. We yeah, really love this. We're, we're big fans, and it's as screenwriters, it's so fun to hear you guys deep dive into early drafts. It's the business is such a weird business, how screenplays can evolve. So we love what you're doing. Oh, that's really nice of you to say. So, guys, A, a Quiet Place is a movie that begins 89 days into a disaster that's completely reconfigured life. We meet a family who have had to completely rewire the way they exist suppressing a way of human connection that we all took for granted before. In A Quiet Place, that's speech. In real life right now, that's human touch. I wanted to kick off by asking if our current world situation has reminded you of the film at all or accentuated any of the themes in your eyes. Do you think about this movie any differently now through the prism of the pandemic? That's a fantastic question. And I think it's kind of ironic that, that uh, you know, Quiet Place takes place in 2020. And yet here we are. Uh, it's it's worse than we thought in some regards. Um, I, I think it does. I, I think uh, what it what it highlights is how realistic it is to be kind of the last family on Earth, the way that people deal with the current state of the world with with misinformation and and their own you know viewpoints that supersede what otherwise might be you know common sense or science um and so i think like it does show how quickly civilizations can potentially fall um with without the types of right frameworks without the types of right leadership um so i think it's illuminated many things that um maybe even felt beyond the realm of fact when when we wrote it you know you know so many years ago and that uh what we thought was fiction actually is you know uh worse in reality in some regards not not to kick this off on such a dour note but that's 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 a lot of the stuff that's been going through my head when and where did a quiet place begin for you can you remember where where it was that the central idea for the film came from and and when it was that it struck you yeah, I mean, well, it came from much more humble means than global crisis and post-apocalyptic uh, world uh, view. It was more just when Scott and I were in college, we were just we were watching a lot of silent film 
and we were watching a lot of Charlie Chaplin and we had kind of discovered Jacques Tati, who's this wonderful French filmmaker who was doing silent movies um, after sound was invented. And so he was using sound, but making ostensibly what would be considered silent films in a brand new way. And we just kept poking at each other and going, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to do a modern day silent film in the horror genre? Because sound is the most, um, it's the most beautiful weapon that you have in your arsenal when you're, when you're writing uh, something scary. And it was that coupled with the fact that uh, at the time we were taking these uh, nonverbal communication classes um, in, in school and, and learning about how much people say without really saying anything at all. And so we were just trying to marry those two things together. And that's really, that was like the very first kind of kernel of the idea is like a modern day silent film where this family can't talk and, and how do they communicate without being able to say anything. And I mean, that's interesting. You did mention, of course, there that, yeah, this was in school. We should, we should mention at this point, you guys go back a long time. You are what, schoolhood friends, childhood friends. Is that correct? Yeah, we've known bit? each other since um, the sixth grade. Uh, so yeah, well over 20 years at this point. And um, can you tell me a little bit about, yeah, sort of as a writing partnership who've been working together for so long, what the actual kind of process of like batting ideas back and forth, what does it actually look like, that partnership in practicality? Yeah, we the, the best way to define it is like a healthy competition of ideas um, where both Brian and I, you know, we, we originated by writing our own feature length scripts. And this would have been like in middle school and high school. And then we realized at some point that working together, um, literally doing like writing a script together was going to be much better than, you know, us individually. And we usually come to the table with like, it's, it could be a concept, it could be a character sketch. And we just, we're in the same room. We talk out what that could be in very loose terms when it gets to the actual writing process, um, we, we go our separate ways. So like Brian will be at his place. I'll be at my place. He'll write like the first 10 or 15 pages of the script and he'll send it to me. And I, I look at that and I think, wow, this is really cool. This could be better. And then I take a crack at that and go like 10 or 15 pages further. And it keeps going back and forth. So essentially we like our first draft, we keep saying like, is more like our 10th draft just because it's gone through the motions of like both our lenses, both our perspectives. And we're ironing, ironing over it like time and time again. And it's, and it's really cool to have like that kind of pressure. Like when I know if I'm going to write 10 pages, I don't want Scott to rip them apart. That's going to, that's going to hurt my feelings. So, so like there's a lot of pressure to like do something that's going to impress him. You know, he's like the first audience and I'm the first audience for his material. Um, Mm -hmm. And so not only are we trying to impress each other with the work that we're handing over, but then when we go through a rewrite phase on the pages that were handed over, um, you're adding a new perspective and, and new ideas. So was that the case then for A Quiet Place? Did one of you kind of come up with that sort of alien concept and then pass it off to the other? Or how did the, the creature feature element of A Quiet Place? Well, and all the all the like ideation and all the like world creation, character creation, that is actually done together. That's us sitting in a room mm-hmm. and really like just spitballing ideas. And so in the case of A Quiet Place, we had this kind of vague idea of wanting to do a modern day silent film, but we didn't have, we didn't know what that meant. We didn't have um, a character story we wanted to tell. And so to us, it was just like one of those ideas that just went in the drawer and like, ah, it's a, I don't know if that's interesting. Maybe it's cool. It's just one of a hundred ideas we, we put in a journal. And then through talking about it every year over the course of seven, eight years after we had that idea, 
we just kept coming back to it and, and we could tell that both of us were excited about it and we'd talk about it. And we, I remember one day we sat in a room and we're like, all right, uh, we have a gimmick, but we don't have a movie. We don't have a story. Uh, what, what's this a story about? And we just, through, throughout the course of that day, we figured out, okay, maybe it's about a family on a farm that can't make a noise and um, their scary monsters are going to kill them. All right, well, that's, what else do you got? That's not that interesting. All right, it's a family on a farm and the mother's pregnant. And as soon as that baby is coming, there's nothing they can do to stop it from making noise. Therefore they're screwed. It's yeah. kind of interesting, but what, what's it about? What, what else is there? And we're like, all right, family on a farm, they can't communicate, not because the aliens are here, but because they've lost a family member and they're broken. And that this whole experience is actually a metaphor for what they're going through as characters. And that was like the Eureka moment. That was just the two of us right. kind of tossing ideas and, back. And beyond that too, like this is where a shared life experience, knowing each other since we were essentially like 11 years old really comes in handy where um, the, the character that Millicent Simmons plays, who um, is, is essentially deaf. Like we grew up with, with a kid who was a friend of ours that had a cochlear implant and we were just growing up like he was just he was one of the guys but like whenever we went to a movie theater like he had to get like a special device in order to listen to the film and and there were little moments like that where like oh that's like a type of life that isn't actually represented um you know yeah. on screen and and we were actually at the time before um or while gestating a quiet place we were writing this film for ourselves that was a take on the pied piper and we had a character who had the hearing implant and that script went nowhere, but we were like, oh, this this movie, now that it's coming into focus with The Quiet Place, like this might be that story where we can actually put that into motion. And so that was one of the shared life experiences that we were able to talk about because we had a shorthand from our friend in, in middle school and high school. And same, that. same thing with the pregnancy where it's like we had a family member who had to give birth um, out of nowhere. They couldn't get to the hospital. Their husband wasn't around and they just how to do it themselves in a bathtub and like so we're always like these stories that happen in your life the ideas when we come to the table to write we're always just like kicking over personal stories and and hopefully like scott said shared life experience that we're both familiar with and mm -hmm. and that's where the work comes from that's really interesting about the idea of a deaf character being kind of parachuted in from another project because there's such thematic resonance there right absolutely yeah. That's really interesting. And I also kind of wanted to return to something you mentioned there a moment ago about kind of landing on the concept, but not just sort of settling. You push it and push it and push it to find the, the sort of emotional depth of it. So one thing I love about A Quiet Place is that, and we see this even in the early draft, it's not just a monster movie. There's like a real human element to it as well. So anyone who's ever known mourning or loss can relate to the sort of silence it can fill a house with and the silences that it can put between you and family members. And the enforced silence of both this draft and the finished movie feel kind of like accentuated versions of that. So I wanted to ask if there was a particular tradition of horror movie or creature feature that you wanted to follow in, movies in which the monster or situation has like a certain metaphorical value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you can look at, you know, cinema past whether it's like invasion of the body snatchers or night of the living dead that's that's more than you know just pod people coming here or zombies running amok like it's really poking at the social issues of the times and, and frankly of our time still so it's relevant um i think for for us directly like what an influence would be was um 
this, the year of 1999 was incredible movies. At the, at the forefront of that for us was Shyamalan Sixth Sense. And what struck us so poignantly was that was not just a ghost story. Like it was a story coming to terms with like the mistakes that you've made um, professionally, that you've made in your own relationship and that you've made failing somebody else. In this case, you know, the, the story of Bruce Willis failing um, Donnie Wahlberg's character and then finding um, a way to avenge that with, with, uh, with Cole Sear, the, the character that Haley Joel Osment played. And the fact that that had so many layers beneath the surface of being a ghost story struck us in a way that I don't think any movie at that point in our life had really struck us. And then seeing Shyamalan do it time and time again, whether it was with, you know, Signs or um, Unbreakable, uh, Village, I mean, on and on, like you can, you can see all these, these layered films. That was kind of our gold standard. Um, and so very much like we, we owe a lot of what A Quiet Place is to that cinema of Shyamalan that, that at a very ripe age, like taught us that a, a concept can be more than just what meets the eye. And it can be a popcorn film but it can also be something that strikes you in your own life experience if you have suffered loss or suffered anything that these characters have gone through. Mm. And in terms of like the social kind of climate that you touched on there, there was something in this first draft um, that kind of made me see the film in a slightly different light. There's there's a moment in which there's, I think there's a piece of graffiti on a wall that's that says, why are they here? And then someone underneath has graffitied to shut us the fuck up. Was there, a, <laughs> was there an element of like, I mean, this is a time of just incessant noise and like it's a, you know what I mean? Like, was there any kind of, were you playing with that at all? Can you talk, talk to me a little bit about that liner of graffiti and some of the sort of social context of the film? Right. I mean, we would never... <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the question. I don't, we would never be as bold to be like, yes, like that's like, that's our thoughts. But I mean, like we're, we're, we try to be socially conscious people. We try to be um, whatever politically involved and, and we're thinkers. And so the hope is that whatever we're <laughs> thinking kind of subtextually works its way into the movie mm -hmm. um, in way, one way or but another. We did, I know like we had early conversations. Um, one of the reasons we, we did put that in the draft was we're like, why, why did these creatures choose Earth of all, all the places? And, and we were just thinking about, um, there was this, this thing called the Golden Record that, that NASA put out into space. It just like, it's flying into the ether as, as we speak right now. And it has like music and it has speeches and such. And we were just like, think of that, but amplify like a million fold now with our technology and our satellites and the ability to put this incessant noise of our own voices and, and opinions and such out into the ether. We would be the perfect target for anything that is like incredibly like attuned to uh, hearing and, and sound and such. And, and so I think there was a, a slice of that that we were trying to, to attack with the phrase. And, and again, I think it also was less is more like we didn't want to go into a deep dive of what the mythology was of, of who these creatures are why they came here but we wanted enough breadcrumbs of whether the social reaction to it um even if we don't see anybody else in the film to um just like the undercurrent of what the ideas could be so that people on reddit could have fun debating what um what is kind of the story behind this story as you say it is like a very like microcosmal story it's small and it's focused on this family but it sounds like you guys had talked about the mythology and had talked about kind of what the kind of more global um, 
impact of these creatures arriving on Earth was? We wanted the movie to feel like we had all the answers. We wanted the audience to feel comfortable that we had the answers, even though we weren't going to share all the answers with them. So that it felt like a world that was lived in, but we're really just going to focus on this family and their story. Mm-hmm. Was that- mm-hmm. And and were there cinematic touchstones for that? I mean, when I think about some of my favorite like creature features and science fiction, like Alien, you don't know why the alien is coming after them. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's Alien is exactly the movie we talked about because we talked a lot about how um, Scott and I, and maybe this is a controversial opinion, I'm not sure, but Scott and I really enjoyed Prometheus, really Scott's Prometheus. However, um, we did not think that Prometheus made Alien a better movie. Like, in other words, having all the answers of of how this alien got to be there and what it is like that, that actually wasn't, that didn't enhance that first movie. That first movie was amazing because it was so terrifying and because you didn't know everything about it. Um, and, and it was, you were meeting this creature um, with the characters. Um, and so that was a reference point for us because we really didn't, we wanted to hide that mythology and just drop yeah. you in. These, this family on a farm, especially because they're so remote and they're not very connected to the outside world and technology is obviously you cannot like there is no technology anymore in a world where you can't make noise um so they don't really know a lot about this thing i think it's also like our love of hitchcock films and like everybody knows like what the idea of a, of a MacGuffin is like it's it's the idea just to thrust the plot forward and you don't like even in in the hitchcock films where they describe what the MacGuffin is like your brain kind of just turns off and you're like just show me like Cary Grant out in the middle of nowhere and and a biplane coming down to get him and when you crack like when you think about that sequence you're like this is really manufactured like for just for this cool set piece, but to a certain degree, like that's what you want out of a blockbuster movie. And so it was for us like trying to um, basically like scratch both of those, those itches where it's like, you want the ability just to deliver what's going to be impactful, like cinematically without having to peel back all the onion layers. And, and again, I think it, it goes back to the emotional layer of the film was the important one to really make sure that was connecting all the dots between these set pieces. Because if you don't have an emotional backbone to this movie, if it's not about what it means to be a parent, if it's it's not about family, then really there's nothing there that I think people are going to, going to take away on a, on a certain layer. Keeping the film focused in on one family in one small setting allowed you to tell like quite a lean story but it also allowed you to make presumably a bit of a cheaper film than if it had loads of locations and a bigger scope looking at how this catastrophe might have affected an entire city. So you guys were still breaking in at the time of writing this. What degree of pragmatism was there in crafting the story around just one family in one location? Was there, was there an element of, okay, it will be cheaper and easier to make and therefore we're more likely to get greenlit? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, Scott and I had been we've been writing scripts ever since we first met each other um, as, as 12 year olds. So in other words, we've written 30 scripts that never got made, you know, like throughout the years through high school, through college um, and then into adulthood. And, um, and we were trying to crack the code. And, and one of the things you start to realize as you forge a professional career in the film business is that everybody's job in film, executive studios, producers, their job is to basically not make, their job is to read scripts and go, well, we're not going to make this movie for A, B, C, D, F, G. So we started um, about a decade ago, starting to think like, well, let's, let's start writing movies that are scalable. Let's start writing movies that could be done for a lower budget or a medium budget or a bigger budget and, and, and write scripts that are effective at all of those levels that kind of check all of those boxes 
so that we remove one of the barriers to getting a movie made, which is budget or logistics or production. So, so it was like in, in a quiet place is a perfect example of that. We always talked about that, how it could be um, worst case scenario. Like this is a movie we could go back to Iowa and we could, we could make it for half a million dollars, use our friend's farm that we know out in the country and, um, and, and assemble a small cast. Like it could be done. There was basically nothing that was going to stop us from making this movie. And so when we brought it to town and we brought it to the studios, we were able to have that kind of confidence of saying, we're making this movie, whether you guys want to come on board or not, like this is going to be a movie that exists and you can either be a part of it or you can compete with it. That's your choice, but this is the movie we want to make. And when you've written 30 scripts, do you get uh, any kind of like, did you have a good feeling with this one? Did you know you were onto something? I mean, yeah. Although I would also say like with each of those 30 scripts, there was some point in that process on each of them that we were like, I think we're onto something. (laughs) That's kind of the naivete that's important in terms of like chasing this career like you can't always be down on your luck but you also have to realize like this script may may fail like it may fail once again but but i do think with a quiet place like we just knew we were writing something that excited us and and to be completely frank like there's times that we've written other scripts that we lost that passion halfway through where we weren't feeling it and that's usually a good litmus test that this if you throw this up that that movie up on screen, it's not going to be um, that interesting or that good because the passion died in you. And so with Quiet Place, the passion just kept coming back. Every time we returned to the page or we were like getting the script ready to take out to a, to a production company, we were always excited and engaged. And that, that felt special. So we did have the inkling that like best case scenario, like we will get this movie made, even if it's the half million ver- dollar version of it. Hopefully we can take that to some festivals and it'll, it'll be a fun experience for an audience to essentially see a silent film, but done in like a modern day context uh, in, the, in the spirit of Alien. So let's dive a little bit into this first draft itself. So the structure of it is is quite different. At this point in the movie's development, there was still a family in mourning, but it takes a while to kind of figure that out. And we're teased throughout this screenplay references to a teenage girl it's much 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 later in the in the draft that we find out what happened to her um in the finished movie of course we, we begin the movie sort of seeing a child die in this kind of devastating opening scene can you tell me about that original idea and why it was that you came to sort of switch things around sort of introducing this younger child who dies at the behest of these creatures was that to kind of like more immediately show the danger, the threat that these creatures posed? Yeah, well, the the original idea was we wanted a mystery to unfold throughout the entire story. We thought that we wanted the movie to be not meandering, that's the wrong word, but we wanted to let it be kind of a slow bubbling up of what this family is going through. And so our solution to making sure that the movie was was entertaining from a story standpoint was this mystery of what happened to this family. Why are they broken? Why are they not communicating what is this tension between the father and daughter we're not really sure and then it and then it evolves over time um when john came on board he felt strongly that he wanted to kind of open the movie with something really explosive to kind of set up the rules and the stakes and so the the easiest solution to that was kind of pulling these interstitial i guess they were flashbacks of sorts that kind of let the story unfold and just putting it all up front and it was a really nice um it was a really great contribution because we know exactly what these monsters are capable of. You um, and by the way, we would never dare 
like killing a child in the opening scene of the movie. Like, I don't know how many times we've tried that in scripts throughout our career. And we're told you cannot do this. Like you are breaking the rules. You're not allowed to even think of doing that. Um, So it was really wonderful when John was, you know, he just was committed to, to opening with something that explosive. The fear was, does it take the air out of the story? Because there's nothing quite, we're not quite being pulled along, but there is something nice conversely about having all the information up front. So instead of, you're not revealing a mystery, but, um, but the suspense is still landing and you're still, you're invested in these characters and you know what broke them and um, you're a bit ahead of it. And, and that's a really interesting experience as well. Yeah. I think it is worth just recounting for the listeners because as you mentioned, it, it does make on, on one hand kind of storytelling sense to start it in the explosive way that it does. But the mystery element this first draft begins with is really interesting. So we start on a farm and are kind of quietly dropped into this world where it takes a moment to reveal that just how normality has been disrupted. So we start on a hilltop in daytime. This hilltop is lined with corn, golden and brown, shimmering in the morning heat. There's a structure in the distance, a farmhouse built from old lumber, There's no cattle or livestock in sight, unusual for this fertile land. April, aged eight, gazes out the window pane of a den, nervous, eager, sweet. She has a hearing aid in one ear. Uh, We see her older brother, Will, ten, he's standing outside. We also see a golden retriever with a muzzle. And it's at this point that you start to sort of feed in these kind of signs that something's kind of off. Will wears these kind of shoe covers over his feet. April empties a trash can with meticulous care to be completely silent. We meet John and Mia, their parents, who are also kind of carrying out these domestic jobs in utter silence. And it's almost kind of a totally serene domestic setting until the end of this opening sequence where they're playing Monopoly and suddenly April lets out a giggle. It's the first sound we've heard this whole time. John's eyes widen and then we hear it, a scream in the distance. It is not human. What did you initially love about that kind of subversive opening? Yeah, I I think it's our love of Twilight Zone, uh, the Twilight Zone series, where they do such a great job of throwing you into an environment that you slowly realize in some of these episodes that something is slightly off kilter to a degree that by the end of the episode, you're in such a different place than where you started. And I think for us... It was interesting with this opening, the original, like this first draft of A Quiet Place, where it felt like it was our own backyard here in Iowa, where you were just going about your daily chores on a farm. And then all of a sudden, you know, five pages in, you realize that you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not in Iowa anymore. Like there's something terrifying out there that's going to kill you if you make a sound. And all of a sudden changing the rules right on page five and then telling the audience like, you're in for a hell of a ride for the for the next, you know, <laughs> 90 minutes of, of your time. I, I also think those early pages were a reaction. Something Scott and I talked a lot about was like inherently a quiet place is a you would put it in the post-apocalyptic kind of subgenre, but we really wanted to avoid the cliches of that subgenre. Like we didn't want to see um, in a perfect world, we wouldn't see like a deserted city with cars turned upside down and trash cans burning with fire. We wanted to create kind of like a benevolent, beautiful, gorgeous version of a post-apocalyptic world that you haven't seen before. And then just little by little start to pull at the seams of that until mm-hmm. we realize what's going on here. So that was something else that was on our minds too. And the first act is quite similar in that we see this family preparing for the birth of a new child. The mother, Mia, 
her entire arc kind of reminded me of that screenwriting advice that's always thrown around. So you take a character you love and you torture them. You find the worst possible situation for someone in their position to be in. Um, So, I mean, a pregnant woman having to give birth in a world in which to scream is to risk her life and the life of her new baby seems like the best encapsulation of that advice ever. Could you tell me a little bit about, yeah, sort of like the, you mentioned earlier, obviously, that there was a a bit of autobiography that, you know, a friend of yours that kind of helped inspire that. Could you tell me a little bit about sort of some of the other ways that you, uh, yeah, reverse engineered, like what are the most terrifying situations for these characters to be in based on who they are as people? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, for us, it was just in that idea gestation stage where we were trying to figure out, like, what has this family been through and what more can we thrust upon them to make it completely awful? And it was, <laughs> it was again, that, that sense of healthy competition where, you know, Brian would be like, what if, you know, she's pregnant based on this idea from a family member and then it's me coming in like, oh, what if the uh, the monster comes in actually when she's giving birth and then Brian being like, oh, what if she steps on a nail as she's trying to escape like the monster and just like going back and forth, um, trying to just make it awful. But that's that's something that I think like in those 30 screenplays that we learned is that you can't be too kind to your characters exactly for the point that, that you're bringing up. Um, because in order to actually root for them and care for them, you do that because you see them surmount like odds that are, they're completely up against the odds and, and they get past that point. And that's what really makes you want to love them and, and root for them. And so I think throughout the entire course of the film, we were trying to apply that to everybody's arc, um, you know, with up, to, up with the father to make the inevitable sacrifice that, it, that he makes at the end of the movie, like trying to make him make the hardest decision possible when he knows he's brought new life into the world that he essentially will never get a chance to grow up with. But he's doing this in order to rectify his wrongs that he made earlier and basically come to terms with the relationship with his daughter and his son that he has right in front of him that he needs to prove his his ultimate love for. Another thing that um, is, is quite special about A Quiet Place is it isn't just like the patriarch who has that arc every single member of the family seems to have like a sort of emotional journey and a sort of emotional transition to make like we're starting to see it in this early draft but by the finished film like the son who is kind of a little bit scared at the beginning he sort of has to kind of you know sort of step up and sort of conquer his fear and um you you really um yeah you do manage to give a, an arc to each character can you tell me about the importance of that and how difficult that was to to balance well, I'm glad. I, I, I think we're happy to hear you say that you could recognize an arc in, in all of the characters because it's something that we try to do. And then you and then you always wonder, and it happens on every project where you're like, are we servicing each character enough? And, and is it coming through? Because you, you do, like, first and foremost, you kind of have, um, you know, your lead protagonist and you really want to make sure that arc lands. But the hope with this one is that it, we always wanted to feel like an ensemble piece and that it's about not just um, the John Krasinski character, the Emily Blunt character, that it's about this family and that they're each kind of struggling with something. And, and so, yeah, we would just, we would pepper it in. Um, and, and the other hope with this movie too, in particular with the ending is that we really wanted Regan, uh, the daughter and, and, um, the father, we wanted their arcs to hit kind of at the same time that, that by him being able to sacrifice himself, um, and tell his daughter that he loves her she's able to move past what she, what's hurting her and what's holding her back. And so trying to get those to crescendo at the same time 
was something that was important, but we never know. We're always like, ah, we hope, I hope that's landing. I hope that's working <laughs> for all of the characters. Uh, it's, it's something we care about, but we don't know when we're pulling it off. <laughs> well, as the, uh, yeah, sort of, as the first act goes on, we start to see a little bit more of kind of this creature. And each time we see it, it's a little bit more pronounced until we finally kind of get this sequence where you, you introduce it as they are staring at the silhouette of a nightmare. It stands on four legs, hunched low, predatory and dangerous, its skin deep dark red, the colour of dried blood. There are no eyes on the monster's face, and as it saunters towards John and Mia, we realise it cannot see them, the creature's jaw unhinges. So, I, I guess we should talk here a little bit about sort of the, the gestation of the actual creature itself. It's obvious from chatting to you guys that you have a deep love for kind of like creature feature cinema. Um, what were some of the reference points in terms of like, well, what this creature would look like, how it would act? Right. Um, well, it, it ties in. Uh, your your first guest was Joe Cornish, right? With, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Attack the Block was a movie that, that we certainly looked at. Um, because what we loved about that approach was it was a creature unlike anything we've seen before. And it was also from a production standpoint, uh, a person in a suit that basically was, was imbuing that character. And so we always thought like there was something real and, and tangible when you have a person in a suit that is literally chasing you as, as an actor. And so I think that was our original inclination. Um, but, but it's also a challenge because I feel like we've seen so many different creatures in cinema that we could write it on the page, but ultimately it was going to be up to the challenge of the incredible collaborators uh, that, that came onto the film during photography and post-production that we're going to have to surmount that, that challenge. And at the, I think at the core philosophy of it though, it was always to hide it as much as possible. Um, like our, our mantra that we're, we're a broken record about and will be till the end of our career, whenever, as soon as that might be, is less is more. And less is more because it's always about the philosophy of like Jaws or Alien, where what you conjure in your imagination is way scarier than when it actually, uh, the creature reveals itself to you in, in full. And so what we always try to do in, in writing the script and, and certainly as much as possible in making the movie was, you know, hide it behind, you know, staircases. Just you hear the sound of it before you actually see it. And, and try to put that in every corner of the this this original draft. That it's had. interesting how you factor in, in all your descriptions later on in the script, you really do factor in what would the biology of a creature be that, that can't see, that relies on sound? What were some of the conversations that you guys had about that? Just, um, yeah, it, it was something, it was just kind of, um, you know, common sense, or for lack of a better term, like, like we were just like, what would this, if, okay, if it, if it hears really sensitive things and can hear really far away, and that's the barometer for who lives and who dies, then it probably doesn't have eyes. It probably has this really sophisticated um, sense of, of hearing. And, and there were a lot of like rules too that, that we couldn't incorporate into the film itself because it would feel belabored, but like, you know, the question is like, why does the creature attack when it hears like this soft sound of like twigs snapping in the woods versus if you just played music on loop 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. And so like those rules that we figured out was there are things that can become attuned to. So if you're playing music all the time, like it's intelligent enough to register like, oh, that's just a distraction. Whereas if you hear something 
you know, organic that seems like it's happening in the woods and it's stepping on a twig, that feels um, like it's happening of the moment or it's unnatural. And so it's going to investigate that and potentially kill it. And so we had to figure out all these little justifications of, of the rules. Again, things that you can't spell out in a movie or else it'll feel way too expositional and, and, and the audience will kind of scoff at that as well. There are so many elements from the finished film that are here in some variation. So we have story beats like um, the sun setting off the fireworks as kind of this distraction. There's, of course, still the agonizing birth scene in the bathtub. Um, but in this version, we don't quite have the same level of terror. There's In the finished film, there's the, the creature, the beast is in the house and sort of clawing its way up the stairs as as the sun sort of stretches to set off the fireworks that will distract it and there's such mounting tension um could you tell, talk to me a little bit about like your process of like taking a scene and pushing it to its most punishing extreme because in this version it that that scene is there but you haven't quite like cranked up the tension in the way that it is in the final film Part of that is, um, you know, you put all of the elements on the page and then you can like take a step back and then evaluate, like, how do we make this even better? And that's something Brian and I, um, I think because there's two of us, we're always trying to be as objective as possible. And so I think for the process in, in developing further drafts of this script, it was simply seeing like, for instance, in this draft, Mia gives birth, but then the creature comes in the house after that birth. And we're like, oh, what if you slide the creature coming in like forward and all of a sudden you have inevitable tension that is, is mounted in a more visceral way and, and tension filled way. And so I think it's like you look at all your chess pieces and you figure out how can I move these just one stage further so I can get closer to checkmate and get the audience like exactly <laughs> where you want them. Um, so I think it's, it's partly that it's like you do your homework and then you try to step away from it and approach it with, with as fresh eyes as you can. And that was very much indicative of this process in, in later rewrites. What was your, the friend who helped inspire it, what was her reaction when you showed her the final film and showed her that scene? <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about it, um, but... Well, uh, he did, like, it, it was a guy and he, he actually, he showed up and before he saw the film, he handed us two cigars uh, as just like, congratulations. And what was funny is neither of us, uh, neither of us smoked, so we're just like, thank you. And then... <laughs> he saw the film and we didn't get to really like have a conversation in, um, in, in depth, but I don't know, like if that's, I don't know why, why that is, if that was just him processing it. Um, I don't even know like if he saw himself in it because we never like really said that directly to him. It was just like an inspiration point. I will say though, like one of the um, like most poignant parts of doing this film was we were reached out through Facebook um, by a mother who had a son who had a cochlear implant. And the gist of it was, she said like before seeing this movie, it was always something like he was very embarrassed by after the movie, he felt like a superhero. And what was interesting about that was we didn't like, we wrote this film like as something that should just be enjoyable and should be fun. But it, it reminds you of how cinema and storytelling and representation actually can can affect people that you just, you never really process when you're writing, you know, words down on a page. And so to a certain degree, like it, I think that taught us like the responsibility of um, what you put into a script as early as the first draft. And, and you don't want to overthink it, but at the same time, you want to be, 
you want to recognize like the characters that you're that you're putting in screen and, and what their arcs are and what they actually can do outside of you know the script outside of the theater and who the people are that are actually watching these films and ingesting that for for better or for worse yeah we should mention actually it's really cool how that character's disability is not treated as something that defines her it's not something that hinders her throughout the plot it's just a part of who she is and it actually almost ends up saving the day in a way um can you tell me about the ways that you tried to was it seems like there was a conscious effort to try and find ways to empower that character tell me a little bit about your approach to april as she's known in this first draft yeah the, the basically the idea was we wanted to take the monster the alien's biggest strength which is a tearing and we wanted to turn that into its biggest weakness. So by the end of the movie, they're actually using its ears and sound against that, against the creature in order to kill it. And then we wanted that to crisscross with the daughter's arc, which is her perceived, what might be perceived by somebody as, as a weakness is actually her superpower. It's her strength. That's how she's going to defeat this thing. And having those two things intersect um, was, was always the idea. I can't remember at what point in the process we, we, grabbed onto that but i think it was pretty early because yeah we talked about how are we going to defeat this monster and how does it relate to character we're always trying to draw everything back to character 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 and then i think like the additional layer is as the script evolved and like the uh what what's in this original draft of like the framework of these flashbacks that illuminate like how this character became deaf like that fell away and then it allowed like the character to actually be deaf from like minute one of the script and and one of the the wonderful things about this process was the casting of Millicent Simmons, who has been deaf essentially since, since she was a baby and her life experience, what she brought to the table, you know, with American sign language and her way of communicating and her, her, her ability to represent what this, her experience actually is. We consider her like the fourth writer of the film behind ourselves and, and John Krasinski, because we could never, you know, put ourselves in those shoes the way that she's able to um, to fill that role and be able to, you know, represent her own lifestyle there. And so it's one of those beautiful things that you can try all you want as a writer to write these characters, but um, it really can come down to the casting to really breathe, you know, something beautiful into it. So we should discuss one of the biggest differences between this draft and the finished film. Um, as act two goes on, all hell is breaking loose, the family is split up, there's a baby now in the mix. Um, interspersed through all this are these glimpses of a teenage girl, these these flashbacks. We don't know how this girl figures into the family, into the plot. Um, but as we progress into Act 3, it's finally revealed that this was a family member. And she was killed in a car crash, pre-disaster, before the invasion of these creatures. So the father, John, was driving the car. This teenage girl was having a heated conversation with her dad. Then there's this accident. The daughter is thrown through the front seat window. Um, John wakes up from being knocked unconscious to discover her lifeless body on the road. And in the back seat of the car is April, whose ears are bleeding. So she wasn't deaf from birth, but she is now. It changes the whole slant of the film because you realise three quarters through the guilt that must have been on this character's shoulders. So could you tell me a bit about that scene and what it was that ultimately wasn't quite clicking for you? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it evolved in a couple ways. Like, I think first and foremost, like the instinct in that was making sure we made the father feel as, as responsible and guilty as possible for one, killing a family member, but also for, for April's um, hearing inability at this point. And so that he felt this weight. And therefore, there also was a tension between him and April and April, the way that she viewed her father and her father kind of closing in and not not being able to say I love you anymore because he felt so guilty and, and responsible for it. And then it evolved in intermediary drafts where we were never quite happy with the idea of a yeah. car crash that always felt like a, a movie cliche to us. So then we there were drafts that came later that actually set this scene um, during the start of the invasion. And so the car crash was actually caused by the aliens coming to Earth and then it kept evolving. Yeah, and I think like just the summation of it was really wanting to set up the rules and the universe from the get-go. And so it becoming about that opening scene at the convenience store with, with the death of the what became the, the little boy at the beginning of the film. And once that was in order, it was like, okay, we don't need any of this, this backbone of these, these flashbacks. It can be streamlined and much more point A to point B. And now there's the ability to like, fully you know in in envelop our our character that millicent simmons plays as just being deaf and there's not necessarily the agency or explanation behind that but that's also part of the the reason why this family was able to communicate in the first place knowing sign language and it actually became an asset for them throughout the film so it was all these different you know blind alleys that you kind of take that inevitably lead you to what the final uh, version of the film becomes yeah, and I suppose it goes back to what you were saying earlier about sort of tweaking and tweaking and sort of trying to line things up to hit the audience with like the greatest amount of impact because you do keep that same kind of element of guilt, but it's with the new introduction scene, the one that we uh, see in the final film, the guilt is sort of transposed onto the daughter's shoulders and she is the character that gets to like have really the most complex emotional arc she's the one carrying around that guilt which is so cool because it's not it is usually the patriarch that is kind of prioritized in terms of giving them the real complex emotional arc in a movie right exactly you're absolutely right yeah and full credit to to john who just he kind of had that thirty thousand foot view of the script by reading it with fresh eyes right after um he and emily had given birth to their second child and i think that kind of perspective the perspective of a father really elevated the script so we're really proud or really grateful for his contributions because at the time um you know we were just pretending to be fathers and scott's a father now but when we were writing the script um that wasn't the key he was a prospective father um and i'm still not a father so (laughs) so again and i think like this is something we keep coming back to both with millicent simmons uh like her contributions to the script um as, as an actor actress and um and john like we hope we think we believe that the best materials writers come from when you're digging into something that's deeply personal and using your personal experience so we're the we're the lucky benefactors of their amazing um, experiences human beings on this planet (laughs) and we then get to the uh sort of final scene where um one interesting thing about this sequence actually that i should mention is we see in the background the alien ship this this dropship as you as you call it can you tell me a little bit about that and sort of why you ultimately felt like maybe we don't need to glimpse that we, we're going to understand that they're aliens 
Right. Yeah. It, it was one of those, I think it was <laughs> somewhat by virtue of the, the budget of the film, like it, that, that there was, uh, you know, this, this expansive set piece that we had at the end that, that didn't make the, the first film. And that was partly because of budget. And therefore it was also like seeing the dropship was built into a part of that. And, and it also felt like, again, less is more. It wasn't absolutely necessary to really drill into that once you know the film started coming together and like you get the newspaper clippings that suggest you know some of the the origin of these creatures and it just didn't feel like you needed to pontificate on that any more than it already was like the last thing we want to do is hammer people over the head too many times with um the ideas that may already be present you know in the first half of the film so you don't really want to get back into it in the, in the back half of the film and it's a, and it's a weird thing um, writing a spec script, which was what this draft was, where it's like there's a bit of salesmanship going mm-hmm. on in the creation of the script because it's not ready, it's not yet a blueprint for a movie. It's a, it's actually like a, it's a piece of, it's an advertising for the film in many ways. We need the the studios and the producers and whoever, whatever the barrier to entry to getting this movie made, we need them to get on board and we need to sell the vision. And so having having that dropship in the script made more sense than the movie because we needed the studio to understand right. these are aliens. I mean, we needed to be clear about it. You know, we needed to be all having the same conversation. And, and that's kind of indicative of the whole process. Like if you look at, you know, this early draft of the script to what the final draft of the script became, like the final draft is very much nuts and bolts, like shooting script, everything laid out on the page and in a normal fashion, like this, this early draft of the script, you know, 67 pages with pictures in it. That's kind of what, to the point what Brian's talking about where, you want to communicate the cinematic value of it um, to the point where hopefully it's not gimmicky because we tried to use, um, you know, we, we had tried to use pictures where it felt like it was warranted from a visual standpoint, or we tried playing with the fonts where it felt like it was really communicating the sonic journey of the film, which was as important as anything in, in this movie. Um, but, but eventually you have to let that fall away once you get into the studio process of rewrites and just delivering the, the script to, you know, cinematographers and production assistants and such so that it's not, um, completely goofy on the, on the page. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the level of salesmanship, not to derail too much, but I, I mean, I've seen some things floating around on, on the internet that, you know, there's there's a video that's kind of like a mood board type thing. And it looks like you guys did some sort of like original photography that would kind of explain the look and feel of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was something we put together, you know, before the script even landed at with our production company, Michael Bay's company, Platinum Dunes, or or even at Paramount. And it was something that we do as writers, even if nobody ever sees it, it helps communicate the mood of the film so that we can kind of situate ourselves and what this hopefully will become. And uh, what was interesting is that felt like a litmus test for hopefully why this movie can be unique, why it can be done on a budget and and why it's something that hopefully will engage audiences and and let them, you know, kind of lean into the screen when they see the teaser. And so for us, like those are all things that we, we try to think about when we're writing the script, just because we're the first audience. Like we want to be audience members ourselves and make sure we're putting something out in the world that feels um, exciting to us the same way. Like when we saw the first trailer for the sixth sense or when we were sitting there, you know, August 6, 1999 in the movie theaters to see that movie for the first time. <laughs> we then get to the final scene, which in some ways is quite similar, but in other ways is very different. So the creature is bearing down on them. They're in this cornfield. It's not looking good. The, the father then sacrifices himself to save his kids in this heroic moment of redemption using sound. Did you always know that that was where the film was headed? Was was this always going to be the big, exciting, emotional pinnacle of A Quiet Place? 
Yeah, that was um, one of those ideas um, that we knew from the get-go. It basically was, we know what the concept of the film is. We know we'll have the character of uh, Millicent Simmons, who her what perceived weakness becomes her greatest strength. We knew the father was going to basically die at the end. And we actually did like a 15-page version of this entire arc of the script. It's like the short version of A Quiet Place where we hit all, all of those story points in 15 pages. And once we had that, those 15 pages together, um, we felt like confident enough to write the feature-length version of the script. And I think what we found in the sacrifice is that hopefully it would feel inevitable and hopefully it would feel honorable and hopefully it would feel like the greatest exhibit of somebody's love for one another um, to basically sacrifice yourself for somebody else's well. Yeah. And it was part of the conceptual conceit of the movie too, because the very first idea and, and even earlier scripts than the sale draft and the spec script, the thought was, can we do it an entire movie that's silent and there's not one word of dialogue until the father says, I love you. And by saying, I love you, it means he's sacrificing himself because he's speaking. And, and so that's where that came from is like that, that, that was kind of the initial gimmick is mm -hmm. like, can we do no dialogue and just, I love you at the very end. Um, then of course it evolved into what the script is now where it's like, it actually is through sign language and, and so forth, but that's where it came from. And we touched on it earlier, but that end point as well of like realizing that the, creature's weakness was the hearing aid and it was sound it sounds like from from a pretty early point you knew that was going to be the payoff yeah i mean we we love the ideas where they in retrospect seem seemingly obvious but you don't really figure it out until you get there to to the very end um just because that's that's kind of fun to have the rug pulled out from under you you know same way like kaiser soze and usual suspects or something like he was right under your nose the whole time and the solution was right underneath this family's nose the whole time and so i think it was all these ideas that that we had generated over the course of several years that we had written down or like and just trying to do our homework before we actually wrote the script and, and make sure they were um you know represented in an, in the early drafted script which which obviously you have in front of you but one of the funny things about the early drafts is that we we hadn't yet stumbled upon the idea of the hearing aid being the mm -hmm. noise making device and so there's kind of this um whole other side story of this noise generator mm -hmm. in, in the sale draft that we needed to produce this noise that would hurt the monster and again got to give full credit to john with his thirty thousand foot view of the script he was able to go we have two different things here and it can all be one thing. And mm -hmm. so he was able to take the, the noise transmitter and make it the hearing aid, which just cleaned everything up and tightened everything up. And mm -hmm. that's like, we have to remind ourselves as, as writers and filmmakers that um, the work can always be better mm -hmm. and it can always be cleaner. And sometimes things are working in the script, but you can still take it to another level by collapsing or condensing things mm -hmm. into one idea. The final image in this first draft is of the family at a cemetery but of course in the final film the father has already sacrificed himself there's this like encounter in the basement it sort of ends on much more of a cliffhanger where you have many 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 more of these creatures descending upon the house like alerted to their presence by this shotgun blast and it ends on this amazingly badass kind of like emily blunt's character cocking a shotgun can you tell me about the evolution of that final little send-off to the film it was one of those that actually came late in the process, like in the, in the edit room, um, the discovery of potentially ending on, on that final shotgun moment. And 
I, I believe the, the original scripted ending of them, like, you know, leaving the house that, that was actually, I believe filmed on, on set, but it was one of those situations where like in the editing room, uh, somebody had an idea for, uh, like just ending on that shotgun moment. And, you know, there, there obviously was a question mark because in the edit room, like everything's fair game, but it was like, is that going to be too much of a cliffhanger? Are people going to want more? But, you know, in conjunction with the incredible sound design and then Marco Beltrami's score that kind of swells, it all kind of started coming together and coalescing in a way that it, it felt like the right moment to actually end the movie and just cut to credits. And, and obviously Emily Blunt uh, <laughs> delivers that moment in only a way that Emily Blunt can. And so, again, that's just, we attribute that to the magic of the collabor collaborative spirit. Like you, you bring on people that hopefully are, are smarter than you and challenge you <laughs> and are able to bring in all these incredible ideas to put something on screen that is, um, you know, the, a, a better version of what you ever put on the page. One of the benefits of that ending is it does leave it wide open. And of course, there was a sequel that was supposed to have been released by this point. Did you know kind of early on in the process that um, there was franchise potential in this, that there was a story here that could be opened out and sort of could extend beyond this first film? Well, we always think about it. So it's kind of come from a weird, weird place when you start talking about like franchises and stuff, because as we've mentioned many times, like we came of age as young filmmakers around 1999. And then even preceding that, like the movies we grew up with, uh, when you think of like whatever your, your favorite movie is, but like something like ET where like, there's just like original ideas that came out of nowhere that were not based on any preexisting material. And like we talk about all the time, how star Wars, like the only reason Star Wars exists is because George Lucas wanted to do Flash Gordon and couldn't get the rights to do it. So he had to invent something new. Um, the only reason Indiana Jones exists is because Steven Spielberg always wanted to do James Bond and wasn't allowed to do it. And so they had to invent <laughs> something new. So when we talked about A Quiet Place, like we just wanted to like, we, we felt like we were immersed in a period of cinema where everything was a sequel, reboot, superhero movie. It just felt like, where, where are those movies? Where are the original movies? Um, and so we just took a swing on trying to do that. So we weren't thinking of it in terms of franchise potential. We were thinking of it in terms of like anti-franchise. We were thinking of mm -hmm. it in terms of we don't, want, we don't really want to play in somebody else's sandbox and do the fifth sequel to whatever whatever's out there we wanted to try to do something new so it is kind of ironic of course yeah <laughs> but it's it's one of those things like opening weekend um you know paramount announced the sequel before ourselves or even john had a had a moment to even process you know how the how the film was engaging audiences all around the world and so it, it was funny to see like the announcement of like oh a quiet place 2 is announced i think john and ourselves were like that's great, but somebody else is, is going to do that. And um, it was only like if there was an idea that felt strong enough to really, you know, go back and go back to the script and, and, and bring it on. And like Brian and I already had like, this is our next weird, crazy idea that we want to engage on. So like, we're happy to support, you know, the sequel, but this, this isn't going to be for us. And I think John for a moment was that same way, but then, you know, um, all credit to him. Like there was an idea that he cracked that he was really excited about and he, he was able to bring that to life. And so it'll be exciting, you know, when, when people finally uh, get on the other end of this pandemic to be able to see that movie, I think it's, they just announced it's coming out next April now. So it's been pushed a whole year, but hopefully it'll, it'll be, you know, exciting for audiences to get back into that world. 
let's talk a little bit, if you can, about some of those weird, crazy ideas, as you put it. So what have you guys been working on since? Because it sounds like a really busy slate for you in a minute. Right. So the, the next wild and crazy idea that we have is is something we can't say too much about, but um, we we literally set it up at Sony Pictures. We, we've been, <laughs> it's an idea kind of like Quiet Place. It's been like years and years in the making, but only in the last like nine months were we able to like finally sit down and write this idea to the full extent that we wanted to. And we set it up at, at Sony Pictures um, right when the pandemic was happening. We were in pitch meetings uh, Monday through Friday. Mondays, they were in the studio. By Friday, it was all virtual Zoom meetings and pitches. Uh, this would have been in March. And um, we're, we're kind of in this interesting like pre remote pre-production mode, which is very exciting. But it's something that I think speaks to our love for big blockbuster ideas that can play around the world universally, but also has a heartbeat to it. And so it's got that same connection to a quiet place um, that we're really excited about. And the other thing that we're really excited about is um, Sam Raimi is a producer on it. What we love about Sam is his sensibilities from Evil Dead to Spider-Man is working in the independent world, but also working in this big franchise world. And his, his ability to make movies in both those sandboxes is incredible. And that's the right sensibility that we want to chase as filmmakers ourselves. And so this is something we're not just writing, we're also directing it as well. Um, and then also in the meantime, we've been, we were adapting a Stephen King short story called The Boogeyman for 20th yeah. Century Fox, um, which again, is, has been fun because on one hand, you're playing in Stephen King sandbox, but it's a short story. It's like only 10 pages long. And so <laughs> it gave us enough, um, you know, leash to go off and, and explore different, you know, pockets of, of the world that we're interested in sensibilities of, you know, loss and, and, and family issues. Um, so that's, that's been one of those fun projects to kind of sink our teeth into. Has it led to an opportunity to speak to the big man himself? We, we have not spoken to the king, uh, but uh, he did give he did give his blessing on the script, which was one of the coolest uh, moments of our career. Yeah, so, yeah that night when we got the thumbs up from Stephen King, I, I went off and watched Maximum Overdrive to celebrate <laughs> his, uh, his one film he's directed, and, and it still it still holds up. It's <laughs> Once you've written a film as successful as A Quiet Place, beyond simply the confidence boost that it must give you in your writing to have a big box office hit under your belt. What else do you gain as screenwriters? Have there been things that you learned on A Quiet Place that have made subsequent projects easier to write? Interesting. Well, I mean, like, what I was gonna, what I was thinking is, like, one of the things we learned was, like, a philosophical kind of, like, picture of what it is we do. And that is what we learned was the most fun part of A Quiet Place wasn't, wasn't necessarily the fact that the audiences responded to it. It wasn't the fact that critics dug it and it, and it had a little awards run. It, it was the most fun part about a quiet place was actually like doing the work and writing it. And I think that was a healthy lesson to learn that like, that's the fun and like, and it always is, even if the movie doesn't get made or the movie, believe me, we've made movies that have come out and nobody saw them. They got like a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like we've been in that camp too. And it always comes back to the work is is the fun part and the thing that we love and enjoy. And so that's been really inspiring moving into our next projects to just remember to have as much fun as possible when you're when you're doing it. Yeah, I think I think Brian's right on the money that it, it kind of frees you up to know that success isn't the end all be all, like perceived success. Like find out whether that's like the box office or whether that's accolades, like that's part of the ride, but that's not the the end goal. And I think 
being able, having the freedom to tell stories and hopefully tell stories the way you want to tell stories, like that's really the gold standard for us. And that's something that I think we're, we're aiming towards with every project. And it's also like the moments where you're beating your head against the wall and, and you're not sure how this script will ever work or how it will see the light of day. Those are actually the moments you should revel in. And, and whether you're sitting at the keyboard and you only get two pages written in a single day, like those are little things to celebrate. The fact that you actually have this forward momentum and that you're actually trying to get out your, your inner psychoses or, or inner stories on the page, like that's something to really, you know, wrap, wrap your arms around and, and celebrate those victories rather than, you know, a movie being number one at the box office. Well, guys, this has been so, so, so interesting. And I uh, can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the show. I should also mention as and when you do get to speak to Steven, tell him that, yeah, we could probably fit uh, a maximum overdrive episode <laughs> the car into the schedule. Yeah, I would love that. All right. well, <laughs> deal. Your first listeners. That would be so wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. This has been great. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamel Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>